Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 43 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today covers Jeremiah chapters 1 through 26, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. If you prefer listening to the books, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today we cover chapter 24, the prophet Jeremiah. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Our last class together, we, we saw the slides of the Holy Land, and today I'm loaded with cholera and typhoid serum, preparatory to going back in three weeks. And I'm really floating, so if I say the wrong words, why, please excuse me. I'm not functioning very well. I walked away from my 11 o'clock class this morning, ready to go to lunch, which I'm not allowed to do until after my 12 o'clock class. So it's been quite a day so far. Now, um, before we go into this exciting chapter on Jeremiah, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the historical period of a hundred years between Isaiah and Jeremiah. And that's the last chapter, which we didn't have time to review because of our film slide. And I want you to remember that during Isaiah's reign, he had the benefit of very righteous king toward the end. What was his name? Hezekiah. Hezekiah was righteous. Isaiah gloried in him, but when Hezekiah died in 696, a most vicious, wicked son took over called Manasseh. Manasseh or Manasseh is correct in pronunciation, Manasseh. King Manasseh was as profligate as his father was righteous. He immediately rebuilt the, um, uh, the buildings up on the Mount of Olives for the... Um, uh, sacramental fornication, sacramental intoxication, and all the other things that went with the orgies of the heathens. And uh, he, he was doing pretty good until the Babylonians, uh, Babylonians came along and uh, grabbed him and took him over to Babylon. He was really abused over there. And by the t when he finally got home, he was a very humble person. And so he did everything that he could to try and make up for the lost time. But in 442, or 642, of course, he died after a reign of nearly, uh, what, some 55 years. And he is the one who is said to have not only destroyed all the prophets in his earlier period, but to have sawed Isaiah in two with a wooden saw. Now, as soon as he had died in, in 642, he had a son, Ammon, who was... Um, like his father used to be. He didn't like the reforms. He was 22 years old. He was real gung-ho for the fertility cults and so forth. And so uh, he started inaugurating uh, what his father, in his repentant state of mind, was trying to eliminate. And they killed him. Two of the courtiers, they killed him uh, there in the palace. So at the age of 24, he's dead. And he has a young eight-year-old son who was born to Ammon when Ammon was 16. So you can see Josiah was really born to Ammon at a very young teenage. And young Josiah, at the age of eight, of course, he's crowned king, but uh, they have to have advisors and everything for him till he's 16. 
And then he says, now we're going to clean it up. And so he went right after the, the whole operation, the temple, the Mount of Olives. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, he called, they called the Mount of Olives by a special name. What was it? Did you pick that one up? It's the Mount of Corruption. Lucifer did everything he could to make that mountain from which Jesus would ascend into heaven and which would be one of the most sacred spots in all human history. They made it as degenerate and perverted and depraved as they possibly could. And so it was the mountain of corruption and Josiah said to his men, I want you to tear down those Felix symbols and I want you to tear down Ashtoreth's temples. I want you to tear down the groves. And then he went after the temple block and they had a whole colony of sodomites right next to the temple. Male prostitutes. On the other side, they had female prostitutes. He cleaned all of them out. He went into the two courtyards of the temple. If you can imagine this happening to our temple square. And they tore down all of these um, degenerate, perverted uh, things that had corrupted God's temple. It's amazing what Lucifer does when he gets control of the hearts of men. They don't, they don't abandon these sacred places. They, they degrade them. So that's what had come. Now, while they were cleaning out the temple, they ran across... Excuse me. Oh, it's likely that he did. Uh huh. He knows this is the holy city, and and uh, this uh, he knows what's happened on other worlds. And, and I won't be surprised when we start making worlds if we don't make them the same way. I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if when we have the privilege of making a world and setting it up that we have a Mediterranean and we have a Levant and we have a range of mountains and we, we kind of build it to, to sort of memorialize in our minds what we had on our earth. I think we'll do it the same way. I won't be a bit surprised if when you get over and look in the computer you find they've been doing this for eons and eons. They have an America, they have the Polynesian Islands, and they have their Asian, their Japan. I won't be a bit surprised if they, if they actually program these planets this way. Because if you could control it and you were going to make a planet and you've got to have a special land set aside, why not uh, pattern it after what we knew, you see? That's pure speculation, but I won't be a bit surprised if that's what happens. When, he f when they were cleansing the temple, he ran across something that was unique, new, and unusual. What was it? They actually found a copy of God's law. Now that shows you what had happened to the local scriptures. Nobody, they've been throwing out the scrolls in their trash or allowing it to accumulate up on the shelf and during wars and other things, they'd finally just all gotten lost. The priests aren't functioning. Prophets have all been killed. Who's reading the scriptures? Nobody. So you've got a period here, you see, of about uh, 75 years with no prophets, no emphasis on the scriptures, and they've lost their scriptures. People wonder why we don't have any of the original scriptures. This is why. They came up with one, a copy that they found in the temple. See, and here we are clear back in, in the 7th century B.C., and they just got one copy. So uh, he's, he reads it, and Hilkiah, the high priest, he says, that's interesting, uh, interesting, but my goodness, look what God says we shan't do, and we're doing it. We do it all the time. Oh, Josiah said, look what the curses are that come on the people, we do those things. Hilkiah said, that's bad, isn't it? Josiah said, indeed it is bad. He said, I'll tell you what, we need to know whether or not we've gone beyond the point of no return. Could we get God's forgiveness? You're trying to clean up the country, but maybe we're a lost cause. Yeah, Josiah said, I'd like to know, really, if, we're, if it's going to do any good. So he said to the chief priest, now, if you'll 
find out from the Lord, is it all right? Are we going to come out on this okay? This puts the high priest on the spot, doesn't it? He's like old Eli. He doesn't have revelations. And he hasn't got the Urim and Thummim. And he hasn't been living the kind of life that deserves a revelation anyway. But there is one person in the city of Jerusalem that is reputed to have had the privilege of communicating with the Lord. And who was that? A woman. Hulda. Who is she the wife of? Hilkiah? No. That's the high priest. And what do they call her? Yeah, they called her a prophetess. So they go to her and ask if the king could please be advised whether or not it's too late. And what did the revelation say? What did it say? Yes, it is. It's too late. You are now about to reap the whirlwind. However, I have a special message for Josiah. God says that because of his anxiety, try and clean up the land and save this profligate people. What would God do? Yes, he would never have to see it. It would be postponed. Actually, it happens to his young son, Zedekiah. <clears throat> he has three of his sons reign, and the youngest one is the one that sees the destruction of Jerusalem. So Josiah, realizing that he's got a little breathing spell, does everything he can to get the people straightened out. <clears throat> and so he has the law. He has a general conference called at the time of Passover, and he gets up there by the temple, and he reads the whole law in one conference session. As I say to my boys, now don't you ever complain about long meetings. I used to have some real, in fact, our founding fathers used to stand in prayer for one hour in Boston and Rhode Island, New York. The prayer of the minister averaged, as a rule, one hour. And I, and I told you about that a little earlier. You may have remembered it. Anyway, and then they used to have deacons that would go around. So you're all standing. You're all standing. One hour prayer. I've read some of them, and they're, they're eloquent prayers, but one hour. And the deacons will go around, they got a big long stick, and they reach in, somebody that's dozing, you see, about to fall down. That's what the deacons are supposed to do in the churches. Well, anyway, he read the whole law to them. And he said, evil is coming, we know that evil was coming to Judah, but it would be in the next generation. All right, uh, he then went up into Samaria. Everywhere that he would find heathen priests, what would he do to them? What would he do to them? Execute them. They were all executed and sent to kingdom come for their judgment. And then he went down around the, um, the graves that they honored as their, uh, their sacred dead, their phony priests of the past. And he would actually dig up the graves. What did he do with the bones that were in there? On what altar? God's altar at Bethel. And he burned them. Burned their bones. 300 years earlier, a prophet of God, whose name we don't know, had come and talked to the altar. And he said, you're going to be... Uh, uh, shaken and the ashes are going to fall out of you but dead men's bones will be burned on you and Josiah fulfilled it did this prophet know the name of Josiah yeah he had known his name 300 years before he was born and so these dead men's bones were burned there so nobody could go to their graves anymore more and honor uh, these characters of the past now it's important to understand that between about 696 BC and about 720 excuse me 620 between 696 and 620 the prophets had been called off, killed off by Manasseh. When Josiah wanted a prophet, he didn't know that God had one just up here north of Jerusalem. What was his name? Yeah, just out a couple of miles out of Jerusalem. Uh, but, um, and he's had all kinds of visions. He knows all about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's seen it in vision and so forth. And he was called at the age of 14. 
He's now about 20. Has God revealed him yet? Has God let anybody see him? Does Josiah know about him? No, he doesn't. And it's, about the, it's just shortly after this that Jeremiah does an interesting thing. Or it's a little while after this. He says to the Lord, I have fire in my bones. Don't show me any more visions. I've got to go to the people. I must tell the people and warn the people what's going to happen to them. The Lord keeps saying, it's all right, it's all right. In time, in time. Not yet, in time. Then pretty soon he says to the Lord, you know, they're good men, really. They just need to be told, that's all. And I'm going to tell them so they can repent. And then it won't have to, have, have, it won't have to happen. And the Lord says, yeah, I'll let you go down and tell them one of these days. So he finally turns him loose. And of course, it's Jehoiakim that's on the throne. Uh, this uh, second son of Josiah that we're going to talk about in a minute. And poor Jeremiah, he goes in there and they beat on him and spit on him and push him around and he almost gets himself killed. And then when he comes back, well, you'll notice in his scripture, why the Lord says, and they are a, a, an abominable generation. And you've got Jeremiah saying, in effect, Amen. <laughs> and they're a cruel and idolatrous and adulterous people. Amen. Boy, he's with the Lord now. They, they really fixed him up. Well, there were, there were actually several prophets being raised up in the land at this time. Jeremiah was one of them. Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk all belonged to this period. And there follows immediately after them, who also are contemporaries, Nephi, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lehi. They're all prophets. You see, all at the same time, he just had a flood of prophets. Now, Chronicles says this was a period in which many prophets rose up. And it's talking about Lehi and all these other prophets that were raised up. doesn't name them. But as of the time of Jeremiah, it says there were many prophets in the land. People say, well, there's nothing about Lehi in the Bible. There is. Lehi was one of those that Jeremiah was talking about. That's what Chronicles is talking about. These many prophets were raised up. Now, let's see just a word about Zephaniah that came along about the time that... Um, the great destruction was about to strike Assyria. See, here's the great uh, nation right here. And here are their cousins down south, the Babylonians. And then over here are the Persians, and here are the Medes. But this is the one that's the cruel, vicious nation that everyone is afraid of. So Zephaniah comes along, and um, he runs into businessmen and um, pseudoscientists who say, God is not concerned about human affairs. This is what Nimrod used to say. There may be a God, and if there is, he's up there taking care of a lot of things. He's not concerned about us. He will uh, neither do good nor evil. He just won't, it won't matter, because he's too busy. That's a real old line. And Zephaniah says, you watch. When his hand strikes, you'll find he's concerned. Now, this is something that you mustn't fall into. You must not fall into the trap that God is not concerned with you, because... Um, Everything he said is going to be fulfilled. Everything. And uh, one of my students from one of my classes sent me a little pamphlet. With, I wish the person had identified himself or herself. Uh, because a little pamphlet, and it says, are you, so are you sure about Mormonism? Something like that. Then it has all the prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled. And all the things that are supposed to have happened. And we haven't gone back to Missouri. And... Uh, uh, there hasn't been a destruction of Albany and Boston and these nations that were warned a hundred years ago they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. And it goes down through a great number of things. They just haven't happened yet. They, you don't have the power of the Holy Ghost among you. You don't heal the sick and so forth. And this comes from a person. This person is a student at BYU. That's about all that their letter revealed. Is just very antagonistic about what's happening. 
can't tell exactly whether what the uh, uh, status is, but anyway, I'd love to know who that student is because there are answers to every one of these charges, and they're very scriptural, rational charges. Every time the Lord has gotten uh, uh, gotten very close to his big events, whether it's the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the second coming, uh, the flood, every time he's gotten close to one of these things they've been talking about for centuries, what happens to the people of that generation? It's postponed. It hasn't happened. We're going to kill everybody that believes it's going to happen. They just can't stand it that it hasn't happened. We're sure that it's past now, they hope. But in any event, um, all these things are coming to pass. Some of them right before our very eyes. And before we're through, every single prophecy will be f fulfilled. We do have to go back to Missouri. We are going into Russia. We are going into China. Now, so that's a nice little miraculous prediction to make at this point, isn't it? All right, you watch in a very natural way. We're going to get in there. And they do have a chance to hear the gospel. It's, they're going to hear it. And you'll live long enough when you've seen as many summers as I have. You'll just see these things going over and over and over again. Stay with the Lord. He literally fulfills every promise. But every promise is conditional. And that's to, so we aren't robbed of our free agency. Uh, and we can throw things into the computer to change things, good or evil. But he tells us the two courses that we can go. Well, God is concerned with this. And don't any of you feel isolated, alienated, or alone on a campus of 25,000 students? Don't you get alone. You go to your wards. You stay, you develop friends. Go out of your way to become acquainted and study your scriptures and become active in his kingdom and do your part, your share. Don't wait for other people to come and do it for you or do it to you. They, you, you make your um, overtures of friendship to people. Now then Zephaniah, he said, I want to tell you, tell you Philistines something. You think you've got, got a great thing down here. Uh, you, the, the Judah's up there in the mountains. You've got all the nice things going for you down here on the beach. He said, I want to tell you this is going to be absolutely devastated. And you're all going to be wiped out, you Philistines. See, there are no Philistines anymore, none left. There are Arabs along that coast now. And he says, it's going to become a desolation, and then it will blossom as a rose. And he says, I want to talk to you Moabites and Ammonites, and they, they all get it uh, eventually, uh, telling them in the latter days that it will be changed. Now, Zephaniah said, the Jews are going to return to your desolated land in the latter days. And it was kind of fascinating. I'm glad I got over to Israel before it turned into a, a garden place. Because those terrible um, sand dunes that blocked everything along the coast. See, hundreds of thousands of tons of silt pour out into the Mediterranean. Mediterranean tide pushes them right up along here. They bank up the sand dunes, real soft yellow silt. The mountains then cannot drain off. The water runs down, forms swamps all along here on the plains of Sharon. So when the Jews came, the Arabs sold this land to them that was swamps where people always got malaria and died. That's the only land the Jews could buy in the beginning. They, found, they bought the swamps here, and they bought the swamps uh, up here in, uh, along that territory. And they got Dr. Benyon, who had been uh, on the irrigation program for the, our army assigned to Egypt, and got a number of others and said, now what do we do to drain that land? And so he studied the terrain, told them where to build their drainage canals and so forth. They drained all of this, and today from here to here is about the richest area for raising fruit, citrus and bananas and that sort of thing, in the whole Mediterranean area. 
Of course, Italy's famous for its oranges, etc., and Egypt's famous for its melons and some few things, but that coastline has turned out to be the richest thing on the Mediterranean coast. And so that has been fulfilled in our day, just like Zephaniah said it would. Now, when um, th these prophets all talk about the fall of uh, Assyria, now Nahum talked about it, Zephaniah talked about it, it was, it was the big thing because it was right on top of them. And I just wanted to very briefly go through it. Uh, Nineveh is right here. These are Medes. And these are Persians. And they seem to have all had a hand in joining Babylon and going up there in 612 B.C. and wiping out that city. And they then all fled over to Haran, which was the former home of whom? Abraham. Abraham. Sure? Abraham. They rendezvoused there, getting ready for the big battle against Babylon that they knew was coming later because that would be the wipeout battle. Let me just pause there before I go on to tell you about something that um, happened to me in Washington. See, I ask you, if I ask you where Abraham went after he left Ur, you probably could tell me. They went where? Where did he go? First time on? That was when he was a young person, right. Now, after he left, uh, uh, when he left for good, then he went to Haran. Haran. Um, when I went back to Washington, D.C. to study law, I went into the big, new, beautiful chapel at 16th and Columbia Road, the most expensive chapel the church had ever built, $600,000, a building made of Utah bird's eye marble with a statue of Moroni on top. When I came in, a beautiful vestibule, you see, and I'm, I'm uh, met at the door by a very friendly short person and he's there he's the greeter he's the formal greeter he's got a big coronation and he said uh, good morning i'm ernest wilkinson good morning i walked in i go to the next door and i'm met by somebody he's got a big coronation and they escorted me to my seat i sat down in comes the branch presidency dun, 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 dun. all striped trousers cutaway coats and then in comes the organist. Goes up the organ, striped trousers, cut away coat. We have a choir. We have no deacons. We have no teachers. Four or five priests who hadn't yet made it to elders, but they're all adults, you know. 200 returned missionaries in that chap in that ward. 700 members. And it's just all of a sudden come up out of, from a little tiny branch, it's all of a sudden come to this status. And they're so afraid that they're not going to be able to you know maintain the proper image for the church so everybody's walking around on eggs and and so on and so forth the one the only informal person uh, that i met was the one at the door ernest Gold wilkinson he was welcoming us all everybody right in everybody get in church so forth so i i was there for three or four weeks and uh, all of the sermons were either read or very formal you wouldn't have known what church it was actually never talked about the restored gospel or anything and they were philosophical sermons and economic sermons and political sermons and all kinds of sermons but uh, I said to myself this is different so um, they had a Sunday school class about 200 teacher got sick and uh, one of my roommates was in the superintendent of the Sunday school so he asked me if I'd give the lesson and he said, now, don't give it uh, on the manual, because when he comes back from being sick, why well, he can give it on the manual. You just give it on something to fill up with, fill in with. I said, what I give? I said, I don't know, but it better be good. 
so I said, uh, gee, I wonder what I can tell them, because we had senators, we had congressmen, we had a PhD on almost any subject you want to mention. So, you know, you feel way too small for the job. Now, uh, see, I didn't know then that all you have to do is preach the gospel. It's new to everybody. But in any event, um, I, I got up and I said, now I know uh, <clears throat> I, I'm going to give uh, you a little background on something that may be, may be new and may be interesting to you, but I want to do a little warm-up first on one of our standard works, just kind of refresh our minds on dates and people and so forth. So let's talk about the book of Abraham for a minute. Now, Abraham, let's see, what was he, 3000 B.C. or 100 B.C.? Where was Abraham? Where did he come in there? Not a hand. I said, oh, would you believe 3,000? And then I tried 500, and I couldn't make anybody to say no or yes. And the man that was writing the manuals at that time for all the institutes in the church, he was sitting there. But in those days, we didn't have a single book on the Old Testament written from the point of view of the church. Not one. We were using sectarian manuals for Old Testament. I just want you to realize what's happened in the last, uh, since the last generation in a lot of these areas. You're living in a different, a whole new, um, new era, as President McKay called it. I just want to show you what's, what the Lord's had to put up with. Uh, <clears throat> so I said, well, uh, it, it was about 2000 B.C. Well, why didn't you tell us? Somebody spoke up. And I said, well, uh, I didn't want to insult your intelligences. I thought maybe you knew. <laughs> and... Um, then uh, we went a little ways further, and I said, now, of course, all of you know where Abraham got the priesthood. Got the priesthood. And who, who, tell us where he got the priesthood. No hands. I said, you know, 84 section doctrine comes. Where did he get the priesthood? No hands. Finally, someone said, well, it was from Noah, wasn't it? And I said, well, it came down through Noah, but it wasn't Noah who ordained him. Who was it? It was Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Yes, Melchizedek. And I, I began to get the funny feeling that um, they were all investigators. <laughs> so we had the most glorious time. Once I found out that I could teach them something, we had a wonderful time talking about Abraham. And they challenged me every so often when I said that Abraham, Abraham's father was an idolater. Oh, no, he was a direct line down from Shem. I said, that's correct, but he, would, he even uh, sacrificed some of Abraham's brothers and sisters. Never heard of it. So I said, well, maybe we better go to the text. And so I'd open it up, and we'd read the passage. And then I would tell, tell about how his father tried to sacrifice him. No, that was the priest of Egypt, not his father. So I'd read over a few more verses where his father got the priest of Egypt to do it. Well, they were in a constant state of shock. That's how exciting the gospel is when you've never heard about it before. You've just been raised in the church. Well, that was one of the most marvelous assignments I had in the kingdom. And uh, we got up to 350 every Sunday for Sunday school. 350 adults, 50 of them investigators. And um, we taught that class all the way through law school. And it was a thrilling thing because they were so excited about the gospel to find out that it was so interesting because they had assumed that it was a very boring, matter-of-fact, casual sort of thing. And I'm so proud of you. When I can ask you questions which we ought to know as a people, you know. But ask your roommate. You see, we still got a long ways to go. It still isn't. There aren't enough. But we're coming. As I told my Book of Mormon students this morning, the Lord is proud of you. You're the first generation of the church to know this book. And there are only a few of you, but you, you're, you're getting it. 
And some of them were very unhappy. They'd studied nine hours for the quiz and missed up to 11, 12, 13 questions out of 102. And I said, don't let that bother you because um, those are the uh, exams we used to give our graduate students. You're freshman and sophomore and you only miss 11 to 12 or 13. And I said, you passed in all your papers, so you get an A, you probably get an A anyway, or A minus. You're gonna get a good grade. But your nine hours was profitable. I wanted to challenge you. I wanted you to make you feel like you did have to study nine hours and only miss a few. But there, it's, it's a technical test. But you know your Book of Mormon, that's the thing. That's what's important. And you're gonna get high grades. So, uh, now, um, as I was telling Brother Barrett, he's just finished a book I wish somebody would have written called The World of the um, Bible. World of the Bible. He's taken every place, every place we've talked about, all of the history of it, highlights, everything the Bible said happened there. And he's got it all arranged. It'll be out in time for conference or shortly thereafter. Beautiful pictures. One of the finest contributions that anybody could have made. The World of the Bible. You just flip to the place... Uh, go to the index, it'll take any town, its background, what happened there, etc., all the history. I'll tell you, that's going to make tours to the Holy Land easier. Anyway, that's why we wrote the 4,000 years, along with the first and the third. Nobody had done it yet. And every once in a while, somebody will come along and say, you've got a typographical error. And I said, yeah, I that's, sure have. Have to correct that. I'm just glad we only got a few. But there are just millions of errors you can make in any book, any work this comprehensive. And we've got it now refined down to where we just have a, a dozen or so, and we'll get that on the next edition. Hit it. It's great. But anyway, you write books. When you do, do research, share them with people. I've opened a hundred doors in this book. There are a hundred doors opened that I didn't have time to do anything but say, look how exciting that would be if we really knew everything there was to know about it. All I've done is open it up for you. Plenty of room for you to do your research and write your books. But for me to be able to ask you these questions and have you be able to come up with the answers readily and the dates and the times and the places, the, Lord, the Lord's happy about that. I know he is. Well, now, when they got ready for this big battle, boy, from between 612 and 605, see, that's a, a seven-year period, they're, they're getting ready to prepare. But in 609... Who shows up to help these people but Nico II from Egypt? And he comes marching up here and he's just going to go through Megiddo Pass and the Jezreel Valley. And lo and behold, here are thousands of what? Yeah, Jews. Led by no less a person than whom? King Josiah. And Nico says, my friend, let me pass. And Josiah says, let them die. Don't go up there and support the, those terrible Assyrians that have been so cruel and tyrannical all these years that skin people alive, impale them on poles, uh, cut off all the members of the body and pile up the torsos into pyramids. All the cruelty that they're guilty of, let them, the Babylonians knock them out. And Nico said, look, uh, I don't like Assyrians either, but I hate Babylonians worse. Out of the way, I'm going up. So he tried to pass, and King Josiah got in an ordinary warrior's armor and got in an ordinary war chariot and got out there and led his men. And the Egyptians just let go with a blast of arrows, like coming out of a machine gun, Gatling gun or something. 
These ancient harnesses, they used to call them harnesses because they're little pieces of leather, and they overlap each other so that you could get ventilation. You see, all you got to do is jump up and down a little bit. If you're running, you get a little ventilation, so they're terribly hot. But that's dangerous, too, because if one of them is up when the arrow comes, why, you have no protection. That's what happened to Josiah, and he was killed. And Jeremiah laments in his book about the death of Josiah. He said, we've lost a great friend. Then Nico went on up here, and he got up to about right here, and then he heard that the Jews had gone ahead and appointed one of Josiah's younger sons, who was a very righteous person, and he said, look, I conquered at Megiddo. I'll decide who will be the next king of Judah. And he selected an older son of Josiah, who was very wicked, called Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim uh, liked uh, Nico. He was his kind of man. He went down there and gathered up tribute from the Jews and sent it up to Nico to help fight the war. In 609, when Josiah was killed, in 605, right here on the banks of the Euphrates River, the Babylonians came up. It was Nebuchadnezzar and his father, the king. And they, they won the Battle of Carchemish, one of the very famous battles of all time. You never want to forget the Battle of Carchemish. And it was fought right there, and the Assyrians and the Egyptians were both wiped out. The Egyptians raced back home down to Memphis or Noph or Nephi, whichever you want to call it. And Nebuchadnezzar was starting to follow them, and he heard that his father had died. He had to go back and be crowned king in 604 B.C. Then in 603 B.C., he came back to finish up the job against Egypt. And on the way, he wanted to be sure they wouldn't have a nipping on the left flank, you see, as he came down here. So he gobbled up little Jerusalem and Judea like nothing. And as he looked around among the people, went on tour of the temple, you know, walked through the temple. They told him not supposed to go through. He said, I conquered. And he went on through, you see. And he gathered up a lot of the pots and pans in the temple, uh, things and made of gold and uh, bronze, etc. Then he saw four handsome young Jews. The Bible calls them children, but the word is youth. They were probably about 19 or 20. He decided to pick them up. You all know them. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he took them back to Babylon, had them trained. Now remember, this is about 603 B.C. Now watch what happens. That by that chronology, Daniel has about five years, about five years, 598. The Book of Mormon says 600, but anyway, 598. Uh, before a crisis period arises. Um, you'll remember that, first of all, Daniel was um, fed with his brethren the king's food. Then he asked to just have ordinary vegetables and soup like he's used to having at home. When he was interrogated by the king, he was so brilliant with his friends and answered so many puzzles, the king said, I'll make you one of my wise men or some of my wise men. And it wasn't long after that till the soldiers came around to execute them. You all remember that? And Daniel says, why? What are you killing us for? Well, you couldn't remember the king's dream. Well, Daniel said, nobody asked me. And they said, well, do you remember the king's dream? He said, I might. <laughs> he said, give me a little time. So he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into fasting and prayer. And I'll tell you, that was a, an exciting uh, period. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Daniel, uh, anything yet? Daniel said, no, anything? No, no, I don't have anything. No. Keep fasting, keep praying. And finally Daniel said to them, I have it. I have it. So he went to the door and said to the soldier, don't kill anybody. Just take me to the king. Then he goes to the king and he says, um, I am not able to remember any dreams, nor am I able to interpret them. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar has been told that he's going to have his dream revealed again. He's forgotten it. He says, you can't. They said, you could. Daniel says, but my God can. 
I worship the God Jehovah of Israel. And my God says that you had a terrible nightmare and you saw a great image, head of gold, chest of silver, belly of brass, hips and legs of iron, feet and toes of miry clay and iron. And you are the gold, the great kingdom represented by the gold head. You'll be followed one of lesser glory, which turned out to be the Medes and Persians, and then one of lesser glory, which turned out to be Greece, and one of even lesser glory, which turned out to be Rome. So you can imagine what Babylon was like. And the king says, you are something, Daniel. You are tremendous. Your God is powerful. I'm going to make you mayor of Babylon. And um, like a good Jew boy would, the... He said, well, I have three friends. <laughs> I have three friends. Uh, he said, I'd like to have them ad administer the city, and I will be your uh, advisor. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar said, you'd be, have a good, you'd be a good one to have around. Good, good. So he became the prime minister. Well, the Lord was just setting this up. You can see what was happening. He was just setting it up for, for Israel and for the Jews. Then um, we have um, in 598, or the Book of Mormon says 600, Jehoiakim the king here that had already been uh, conquered once when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach were picked up and said that he would pay proper tribute to Babylon is starting to pay tribute down to Egypt. So in 598 according to the scientists, 600 BC according to the Book of Mormon, Nebuchadnezzar came over here and killed Jehoiakim. And he put in his stead Zedekiah the third son of Josiah to rule on that throne. He's only 21 years of age. He's put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but he loves Egyptians. So Jeremiah comes to him and says, now be subject to Nebuchadnezzar and live. No, Zedekiah says, Egypt is our hope. We will resist in an alliance. We will resist the Babylonians. All right, Jeremiah says, hear the word of the Lord. Temple of Solomon is coming down. This city will be devastated. Most of the people killed. A remnant carried off to Babylon for 70 years. That's the word of the Lord to you, Zedekiah. That kind of holds us still over into the chapter of Jeremiah. But that's the fall of Assyria in 612, the killing of Josiah the king in 609, the capture of Jerusalem and taking away of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in 603, and then in 600 or 598, whichever one you want, we have Nebuchadnezzar coming back, killing Jehoiakim, setting Zedekiah on the throne, and taking 10,000 of the top Jewish scholars and um, artisans away, one of whom was 25 years old, and his name was Ezekiel. In five years, he'll be, he'll call, be called to be a prophet. Now, I just, uh, we have 30 seconds. Uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to mention to you about uh, this one prophet, Habakkuk. He said... He came at the same time, Nahum came along about this time, talking all the time about Assyria, but doing it safely from Jerusalem. Then Habakkuk came along, he said, I have two questions to ask the Lord, and I don't know what he's going to punish me for asking such silly questions or not. But he says, in the first place, I want to know when something's going to start happening. I've been telling him what a terrible destruction was coming to them, what do they get? Prosperity. So I want to know when this thing's going to get started. Now that always happens to a prophet. He keeps lamenting, you know, what's going to happen. He's seen it in vision, and the people say, yeah, it's sure sad. <laughs> it never made so... <laughs> Our GNP has never been so high. Then uh, he said, I have another question to ask the Lord, and that is, why would he allow the Babylonians, who are such wicked people, to punish the Jews, who are also wicked people? What was the answer? 
They'll get theirs in due time. Meanwhile, the wicked slay the wicked. That's the way it's always been, and that will be the way it will be in our own day. So President Lee says there are some forces at work in the earth today that you couldn't turn back with any amount of effort on your part. Uh, the hurricane is going to go through them, and uh, the things are still in the hands of the Lord. Let's do our business and go forward, and things are going to turn out all right for those who deserve it. And those who um, are wicked, they'll get what they deserve also. But in any event, uh, history repeats itself, as you can see. Now we'll catch up, continue with Jeremiah, and I hope to catch up with you next time on that.